Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, good afternoon, friends. Happy Wednesday. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. And uh, my goodness, we've got a lot to get to on the program here this afternoon. 403-974-8255 is our number. 974-TALK. We will talk more about the latest bombshell revelations in the ongoing story about Chinese attempts to interfere in previous Canadian elections, what intelligence officials knew, what government officials knew, what the prime minister knew. Global News journalist Sam Cooper is going to join us in a few minutes. Uh, His latest scoop today is a big one. This concerns two separate reports that went to or would have gone to the prime minister. Be shocking if he hadn't seen them. We'll get those details, what it was these reports laid out and what we know about what came of those reports. We'll get to that in a few minutes. A few other things we're going to get to on the program this afternoon. We'll hear from Alberta's Minister of Justice, talk about Bill 8, the Alberta Firearms Act. Tyler Shander joins us at 1 o'clock. We'll talk about the concern from rural municipalities that they are still owed big dollars in unpaid uh, municipal property taxes from oil and gas companies. Why is that still a problem at a time when the industry is doing well? We'll look at that coming up this afternoon. Also talk about a new report uh, coinciding with International Women's Day uh, about the stalled progress of women's rights around the world. Over 40 countries still maintaining restrictions on women's rights. We'll find out more about that coming up later on this afternoon. The other big news today, the Bank of Canada announcing they are going to hold their key interest rate steady. So the first time they've done that in quite a while. So they're going to wait and see. Let's get to it here. As mentioned, uh, an explosive new report today up at globalnews.ca from investigative reporter Sam Cooper. And it reports on two separate high-level national security reports, both before and after the 2019 election, which certainly suggest uh, the top officials, the prime minister himself even, uh, would have been warned about Chinese attempts to funnel money to Canadian political candidates. Two intelligence reports from 2019 and 2022. The latter is a special report prepared by the Privy Council Office for the government. Uh, And this is a remarkably thick report, a document derived from 100 CSIS reports and produced by the Intelligence Assessment Secretariat, a division of the Privy Council Office. The other report from 2019 comes from this very same committee that has now been asked to look into this matter. Joining us to talk more about all of this is uh, the reporter who broke this story and has broke many stories on this election interference issue. Global News investigative journalist Sam Cooper is latest up at globalnews.ca. Sam, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So this is big and there's a lot to unpack here, but we've got two intelligence reports uh, that are very detailed and come from some interesting sources. And we've also got the fact that this was all compiled and presented to the prime minister. So so walk us through this if you can. Right. Uh, I, I have uh, reviewed, first of all, a Privy Council office report from January 2022 
and for your listeners, the, the Privy Council Office is mandated to uh, collect and provide important national security intelligence for the Prime Minister and his cabinet. And uh, as you know, we've reported on a number of briefs and memos. My sourcing is that this particular memo is a foundational document for the briefs that Mr. Trudeau and his senior uh, ministers and aides in 2022. For the first time, we can report uh, a key allegation. Uh, the, the document says that, this is a quote, a large clandestine transfer of funds earmarked for the federal election from the People's Republic of China consulate in Toronto was transferred to an elected provincial government official via a staff member of a 2019 federal candidate, end quote. So the context of that allegation, uh, this is printed in a high-level memo for, again, the prime minister and his cabinet uh, in 2022 intelligence collected in investigations that started in 2019 into this alleged Chinese election interference network that we've reported on. And so, again, the context of that allegation, this is a a high-level Canadian government document that says that at least 11 candidates and at least 13 of their political staff were targeted in uh, an operation run from the Chinese consulate to interfere in Canada's federal election. So this is a a smoking gun quote that says Canadian intelligence says funds were transferred clandestinely into this network. Well, and, and again, this isn't just some some tidbit of information from somewhere. This is a document that's derived, as you note, from 100 CSIS reports. It was produced by the Intelligence Assessment Secretariat. Uh, and so this all gets compiled into this report, a special report, as it's noted, prepared by the Privy Council Office. Sam, so a lot went into this report. A lot of uh, different organizations or agencies had a, had a role in preparing this report. So th- th- this is very elaborate, isn't it? It's extremely elaborate. Uh, we've been reporting on details uh, that stemming from this report, but this special report, uh, as you say, 100 CSIS investigations. I understand from sources, a number of them refer to this uh, bombshell, uh, groundbreaking 2019 sensitive and high-level probe into the alleged interference and selecting of Beijing's candidates. And it's much broader than that. This special report uh, details uh, China's subversion operations. Uh, The assessment is Canada is deeply vulnerable to Beijing's interference, an assessment from over 10 years of uh, intelligence. And again, not just CSIS. It talks about China's deep and repeated efforts to uh, subordinate or subvert Canadian democratic institutions. And we can't lose focus. Uh, I've reported before, but a key point of this special report is that Asian Canadian diaspora communities are targeted with spying, threats, harassment, surveillance, yeah. uh, and, and also the, uh, the, the so-called fox hunt, illegal fox hunt operations in Canada. One more point, it's not just about funding and selecting Beijing's preferred candidates. This report says that uh, t- uh, some MPs reported in 2021 they felt threatened, harassed, targeted, and that their election chances were hurt but by what uh, look like Chinese intelligence operations. 
the prime minister was asked today, and we'll talk about the other reports, uh, but but he was asked whether he had seen these reports, had been briefed on these reports, and didn't really answer the question. It, it would seem shocking to me, Sam, that given everything that went into this 2020, 20, or 2022 report, uh, that it was, as you note in your report, it was, it was finalized, suggested that it was now ready to be presented. Can you imagine a circumstance here where this would not have been presented to the prime minister? No, I can't see any any possibility of that. Uh, we heard a bit by bit we're getting more uh, uh, sunlight uh, last week. We heard from the prime minister's national security advisor. She confirmed he had the prime minister has been briefed repeatedly, often on election interference matters uh, in 2022 and indeed uh, after 2019 repeatedly. And so this is uh, going towards confirming what my sources have asserted and what I've reported that this special report, again, uh, collects and boils down the most high-level sensitive probe from this 2019 election interference, and it it becomes a foundational source of intelligence for these repeated briefs to the prime minister and his senior aides. This is what my sources are saying, and now we can report on direct quotes from that document. Right, and and they are stunning. Uh, Let's talk about this other report, an interesting connection to the news of this week, because the prime minister has announced that the National Security Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians will be involved in in the review of this issue. But as you note in your piece today, this is a a matter that they've been looking into. They report directly to the prime minister uh, and they produced a report in 2019 on foreign interference. That's right. Uh, It's specifically on the threat of foreign interference and and the government's response. Uh, This was a very deep and detailed study. There's a public version that is a redacted but but outlines uh, and your listeners can find it online some very high level assessments of how deeply canada's democracy is endangered but uh, the details that i have reviewed uh from the unredacted report uh and sources that explain the uh you know the the weight of these findings again point directly to funding allegations and uh we confirmed with the prime minister's office that in this case he received in his hands and read this report. So, uh, again, the quotes are very important. They're not public, but uh, we've reported today that this review said, quote, foreign states clandestinely direct contributions to and support for the campaigns and political parties of preferred candidates. It goes on to say that, uh, quote, targeting often begins during the nomination process, Look, the headline quote of this report that, uh, that was provided to the Prime Minister says, quote, targeting the political nomination process and preferred candidates. Another what I would call smoking gun. I'll give you just uh, two examples, specific examples. This uh, panel, bipartisan panel, did not study the 2019 federal election interference, but looked at uh, cases from 2015 to 2018 One, they quoted saying, a People's Republic of China embassy interlocutor founded a group of community leaders to handpick candidates that it would support and publicly endorse. One more quote, and I'll end my answer. It it says, a former People's Republic commercial council informed People's Republic of China businesses of the rules regarding Canadian political contributions and urged particular business leaders to donate through Canadian subsidiaries and acquisitions, end quote. So there you have the choosing of Beijing's preferred candidates in Canada through 
Chinese diplomats in Canada and diplomats directing Chinese businesses to donate to candidates. Yeah, which certainly lines up with uh, your previous reporting on, on what was going on, and in particular in one Toronto area riding in the lead up to the 2019 federal election in this nomination race. So that really fits with this, this strategy that's, that's been identified. It does. Uh, we're adding more and more evidence, documentary evidence of, of what we have reported on before. And just to put it in a nutshell, uh, this is about, according to the intelligence, very sophisticated networks run from Chinese consulates in Canada. It's not just Toronto, but uh, the, the focus of investigations is Toronto. The, the networks include political candidates, staff of political candidates, politicians not running for office but involved in the networks and very importantly community leaders who would look like they're from grassroots grassroots groups but are used by consulate intelligence handlers as proxies to clandestinely fund and support and engage with even recruit that's a quote canadian political candidate targets for china and one last note from this, and I think it's really important for Canadians to keep in mind moving forward. This isn't just about what happened in the past, but what could happen in the future. This report from January of last year warns that Canada remains highly vulnerable. This is still uh, alive and, and a significant issue. Very much so. Uh, I can say that uh, the, the, the persons that have been uh, explaining uh, uh, intelligence documents and intelligence investigations... I've been in contact with them, uh, according to them, because they fear so much how deeply our elections and democracy are threatened, especially in the past five years. Their point is that uh, the Trudeau government has been warned repeatedly and in a detailed way about these allegations, and yet no real uh, counter counter actions or, or laws, such as we see in other Canadian allies like Australia, have been implemented and so uh, these, this intelligence predicts that China's interference will get worse in future elections. And uh, I'll finish with the quote again. We base this judgment on intelligence that highlights deep and persistent Chinese Communist Party interference attempts over more than a decade. That's a January 2022 piece of intelligence for the prime minister and his senior officials. And I guess in closing, we can say, Sam, that that your work on this story continues. Yes, absolutely. Uh, My reporting so far and along with uh, some of my teammates at Global has been that this is, again, this is all levels of government in Canada targeted. Some cities, uh, according to our sources, uh, of course, have uh, a greater uh, threat from Chinese consulates than others. But this involves many politicians across Canada, our sources say, some of them wittingly involved in the uh, influence efforts and some of them not witting. Uh, we have to stress that uh, there needs to be education because through the uh, clandestine and sophisticated methods of using proxies or insulators between China and their, the, the, the candidates they're trying to influence, People could get taken in and with strings attached to donations that they might not understand. Full details, globalnews.ca. Sam Cooper, thank you so much for your time here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you. There you go. Global News investigative journalist Sam Cooper, his latest. It's a big one up at globalnews.ca. Privy Council report, a special report as it was called, uh, date stamped January of 2022. 
this, quote, a large clandestine transfer of funds earmarked for the federal election from the Chinese consulate in Toronto was transferred to an elected provincial government official via a staff member of a 2019 federal candidate. This is not just some rumor, some little tidbit of intelligence here. This report was derived from 100 CSIS reports. It was produced by the Intelligence Assessment Secretariat, which is a division of the Privy Council Office that regularly provides national security alerts for the Prime Minister and his cabinet. It is inconceivable that this didn't go to the Prime Minister. That's why this uh, report today is so significant. Today is International Women's Day. There's an important new report looking at the state of women's economic freedoms around the world. And globally, 42 countries continue to have restrictions of the economic rights of women. You know, things like just opening a bank account, for example. So that's concerning. What's even more worrying, though, is that uh, the situation in some countries is getting worse. This report finds that, in fact, six countries, Bahrain, Jordan, Qatar, Kuwait, Malaysia, and Oman, uh, declined significantly. So this is a worrying trend and uh, important to call attention to this on on any day, but especially on a day like this. Uh, Joining us to talk more about this report, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, its author, Rose Marie Fike, a senior fellow of the Fraser Institute, also with Texas Christian University, author of this year's Women in Progress report, which you can read at FraserInstitute.org. Rosemary, thanks for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me today. Okay, so when we talk about, um, you know, measuring the extent of women's rights, economic rights globally, what, what sorts of things are we looking at and measuring in this report here? Sure. Well, first, you know, economic freedom, we think about things like property rights protection, uh, the extent to which we really have control over our own lives. You know, um, do we have the ability to to choose an occupation that um, speaks to us? Do we have the ability to move freely around the country, obtain a passport, um, register a business, or as you said, open a bank account? Um, So there's lots of countries in the world that still have additional restrictions on what women can do that men don't have to face. Um, And so the countries, the six countries that you mentioned, um, Sudan, Jordan, uh, Bahrain, these are countries that have very extensive restrictions on on women's economic rights. Um, So what that means is about 50% of the population in that country um, is really not able to contribute their talents, their ideas, and their skills to the economy in the way that they're able to in, in other places. And that's really, it's not just bad for women, that's, that's bad for everybody. Yeah, it really is. Um, you know, we assume that there's kind of a, a trajectory here that as, as time passes, these things improve, even in countries mm-hmm. that are sort of seen as, as you know, kind of backwards on these issues, honestly. But that's that's not a given and that's not an automatic. And I think this report right. illustrates that, you know, things can, can move in the wrong direction. Right. And I think um, one of the things that doesn't show up in this report this year, because the data stops in 2020, but just, um, you know, Iran has been in the news a lot lately for their backsliding on on women's economic rights. And so, um, you know, it's important to be vigilant about these things. If you have the right to own property or engage in, in commerce, that's not a guarantee that that right will always be protected. 
good news is that, you know, the global level, uh, the average um, access, women's access to economic rights has grown at the global level. There are more countries that have been expanding women's access to the market than countries that have increased the restrictions. Um, a really notable country that has improved dramatically in surprising ways that if you would have asked me five years ago, I would have never predicted it. But Saudi Arabia has done mm. very well in terms of improvements in economic uh, rights of women. Um, they've allowed women to have the ability to apply to passports. Uh, apply for passports, choose where to live, travel outside of their home. They've gotten rid of their legal requirement that women have to obey their husband by law. I know my husband probably would appreciate, you know, having the backing of the law when we have a disagreement, but um, you know, that's really restrictive. If I had to ask my husband for permission to get a job or, or ask my husband for permission to do anything, um, that is really going to restrict what I can and cannot do. Might also strain the relationship a little bit. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, well, that's encouraging because I think, you know, Saudi Arabia is a country that comes to mind when we think about, you know, the situation around the world affecting girls and women, the lack of <laughs> political economic freedoms. I mean, that that seems like, you know, one of the countries that would, would be, um, you know, foremost on the minds of a lot of people. So if, if things can improve yeah. there, and then, then, you know, theoretically things can improve anywhere. Yeah, there's hope for women everywhere. Um, previous versions of the Women in Progress report, Saudi Arabia was my country that ranked the worst in terms of, of having additional barriers that women face. They were always at the bottom of the list. And now I can't say that anymore. Right? There's still some restrictions on, on what women can do. Um, but, you know, they've gotten rid of even some of the gendered labor market restrictions. It used to be the case that women couldn't work at night in the same way as men, or they couldn't work jobs that were deemed dangerous, or they couldn't even work in industrial jobs. And as a woman, that might not be my preferred career um, alternative, but there are definitely women for whom that represents their best opportunity. And we shouldn't have laws cutting them off from what be, might be the best way they have to improve their lives. Yeah, and, and it's true. I mean, you know, we look at this from a, a moral and ethical perspective that things should be a certain way, that this equality does does matter and just in terms of a justice perspective. But, you know, the, the benefits of this go beyond that, right? And and this is something the report talks about when, when these economic rights are extended, when women have these rights, uh, it, it improves the health of women, the health of society, uh, creates a more prosperous society. Like The benefits are, are, are tremendous. Yeah, I mean, Saudi Arabia, just in the two years since they have started to uh, expand women's access to markets, they've seen the labor force participation rate of women increase by over 41%. That is a huge increase in the amount of women who are actually participating in the formal economy. And that increase happened at a time where most every other country in the world saw women dropping out of the labor force to you know, help care for the children who are now um, doing their schooling from home due to those COVID regulations that a lot of places have. Yeah. Um, so they bucked the trend that was happening in every other country um, just by expanding the scope of, of women's economic rights. And that just goes back to Adam Smith, right, the father of, of modern economics, that um, 
the ability to create wealth with by trading with each other increases the more people that we have participating in the market process. And so more inclusive institutions, not just of women, right, getting rid of restrictions on what women can do, but getting rid of restrictions on what anybody can do um, in terms of owning property and pursuing the career that speaks to them would go a long way to enhancing our, our ability to prosper as a society. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, as you alluded to, there, there may be some cause for concern in terms of what, you know, the 2020 to 2022 period might look right. like here and, you know, how the pandemic might have given, you know, some regimes some cover to further limit mm-hmm. some of these rights. But what is it going to take uh, moving forward to to keep improving the situation? Well, some really low-hanging fruit that I think a lot of countries have the opportunity to to really get rid of is um, there are over 100 countries in the world that just have some sort of gendered labor market restriction. So, you know, women not being able to work at nighttime hours for for whatever reason, women not being able to work with, you know, heavy equipment or or dangerous chemicals, Um, that would be a really easy step to just remove those regulations, right? If, if women truly don't want to enter into those occupations, then they're not going to enter into those occupations. But by removing those restrictions, you do allow women who might want to break into something that seems like a traditionally male field, uh, you allow them to be a trailblazer and you, you don't cut them off from trying to challenge those gender norms. These rules that really say women you need to be in these traditional roles that solidifies the the gender norms that um kind of encourage women to to stay home take care of children um and that might be what a lot of women want to do but there should be no default assumption that that is what all women want to do exactly well much more uh on this report and these related issues there's a specific website set up it's womenandprogress.org uh, mortfraserinstitute.org as well. Rosemary, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate the overview on this. Thank you so much for having me. Happy International Women's Day. All the best, and to you as well. Thanks again. Uh, that's uh, Rosemary Fike, uh, Senior Fellow of the Fraser Institute, Economics Instructor at Texas Christian University, uh, the author of this year's Women and Progress Report. So, you know, the, there's categories here, freedom of movement, freedom to work, property rights, legal status. So these are, are both economic and political rights. There's some specific questions in, in how countries are scored here. In fact, there's 17. But some of them are pretty straightforward. Like, can a woman apply for a passport? The same way a man can. Can a woman travel outside the country? The same way a man can. Or travel outside her home or choose where to live? Uh, can a woman get a job in the same way as a man? You know, hours of the day. Are, are you know, women restricted in when they can work? What jobs they have access to? Uh, can a woman sign a contract in the same way as a man or register a business? Can a woman open a bank account? Can a woman own property or have equal property ownership rights? So some pretty straightforward questions. And so, yes, it's unfortunate to see there are a total of 42 countries uh, that still have these restrictions in place. And in six of those countries, uh, things worsened. Bahrain, Jordan, Qatar, Kuwait, Malaysia, Oman. One country where things did improve, almost shockingly, is is Saudi Arabia. So if there's hope that that the situation improved there, then maybe there's hope it can improve elsewhere.
Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Brigginridge with you here on this Wednesday afternoon. Plenty more to get to here. Your time uh, time for your phone calls, 403-974-8255. Uh, yesterday, the Alberta government officially tabled Bill 8, the Alberta Firearms Act. Now, firearms, uh, certainly uh, for the most part, is federal jurisdiction. And we're seeing the federal government maybe test the limits of that jurisdiction with Bill C-21, which is far from being finished. It's uh, gone through some, shall we say, controversial changes and amendments along the way. But it's one of the, uh, I, I think it's maybe the main impetus for Bill 8 and Alberta doing what it can to uh, maybe try to safeguard the rights of firearms owners here in Alberta. But to what extent can Alberta do that? What does the Alberta Firearms Act do? Let's explore those questions with Alberta's Minister of Justice, Tyler Shandro. Joins us on the line here this afternoon. Minister, good to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Uh, wonderful to be back. Okay, so we'll get into what Bill 8 does. I, I, I get the sense that part of it is responding to Bill C-21, but if Bill C-21 is not yet a done deal, it is it premature to, to respond with Alberta legislation? Well, no. Uh, this actually goes back to May of 2020. Remember, this uh, began with uh, an order in council back in 2020, which was prohibiting, uh, at that time, up to, I think, 1,500 different types of firearms at that time and uh, there was an amnesty that was implemented uh, in the meantime by the federal government and that amnesty on those firearms is coming to an end well it was supposed to uh, in october of this year although now we're, we're hearing from the federal government that they're planning on extending that amnesty i think it's incumbent on us since the feds uh, don't have the resources or the wherewithal to deal with this situation, for for us to uh, to begin to um, to address it here in Alberta. Okay, so address it how? What, what does this act do? Well, we have to remember, uh, and, and maybe to correct something you had said, we have to remember that both the feds and the province have a role in firearms regulation. And and yes, you're right that they're they're responsible for regulating firearms as a, a matter of of um, you know as per the uh, the criminal code and and the federal firearms act. But the provinces play an important role by administering the Federal Firearms Act, which gives uh, the, the authority on uh, us the authority on issues like licensing and transfers and, and how to transport firearms. But we also have jurisdiction over firearms from a property and civil rights perspective. So Bill 8 is um, clarifying the role of the chief firearms officer um, uh, and uh, having some greater transparency and having her office uh, file an annual report with the uh, the legislature, but also dealing with if we're going to have a, a seizure program of firearms, uh, it's going to be increased uh, transportation, storage, uh, movement of firearms throughout the province, and and dealing with that safety concern by licensing those seizure agents, uh, so that we we will be able to have greater oversight on on that uh, if it does occur here in Alberta. Right. But I mean, in terms of the classification of firearms, non-restricted, restricted, prohibited, that's federal jurisdiction. Alberta or any other province doesn't really have a say as to whether a certain firearm is classified a certain way. Well, we uh, I think actually the provinces could. But uh, if we can't, we can't overrule if uh, the federal government decides to prohibit a, you're right in saying that we can't um, overrule the federal government from determining that something is prohibited. That's correct. 
Okay, so yeah, that's that's what I mean about the the federal jurisdiction maybe being the the most relevant here in terms of what is actually going to change and what the legal status of certain firearms will be after C twenty one becomes law, assuming it does at some point. So again, then what can the Alberta government do uh, for those firearm owners who who are going to be affected by this? Continue to advocate uh, for sensible uh, policy that is focused on. Um, improving safety in our communities as opposed to uh, targeting law-abiding Canadians. That, that's, that's the primary goal uh, that we've had since May of 2020, and we'll continue to do that. But we also um, are responsible for the administration of, of justice in the province as a, as a province. And you know, we uh, do have concerns with the increased movement of uh, firearms throughout the province if there is a seizure program. So part of the bill is to, if, if there is a confiscation program that the rolls out nationwide comes to Alberta, uh, once we get the details of that, this enables a provincial government to, um, to look at um, regulating the, the storage of those firearms, who uh, can be involved in that, that seizure program, um, and, and matters like that. Right. And, and I mean, this bill, I guess, is meant to reiterate some some things that have already been announced. Like, for example, the Alberta government has already taken steps to prevent municipalities uh, from acting on their own to to bring in, for example, a handgun ban, which federal uh, legislation would would empower municipalities to do. We've spoken before about, you know, some of the, the changes in in, I guess, the emphasis when it comes to the prosecution of these cases. We've talked before about, you know, whether the Alberta government or police forces in Alberta would provide any support to, you know, to confiscation efforts. Uh, so much of that has already been announced, and, and I, I get mm-hmm. the sense it's being reiterated here, but has anything been added in this legislation on any of those fronts? Well, yeah, quite a bit is, is being added here in, in the, the Alberta Firearms Act. Uh, as I said, making the, the role of the chief firearms office, uh, officer here in Alberta, clarifying that role, um, having the greater transparency in the annual report, but also enabling uh, the provincial government to develop regulations related to uh, that, the confiscation program, if it is um, unveiling nationwide. So there's, there's quite a bit that's, that's being uh, proposed here in, in the Alberta Firearms Act. Uh, but again, with a focus on improving the uh, safety in our communities rather than recklessly targeting law-abiding Canadians. Does this change the role of the chief firearms officer at all? It's not changing, but it's clarifying it. Okay. And um, and I think empowering the chief firearms officer to uh, to continue to advocate, continue to develop sensible policies uh, here in the province um, and work with other provinces as well. You know, this is um, this this framework began by the chief firearms officer here in Alberta and, and I looking at what was being proposed in Saskatchewan with, with their um, firearms uh, legislation. Um, and I think there's quite a bit for us to learn from Saskatchewan. And so it is a little bit of a different uh, perspective than what they're taking. But, um, you know, working with, with other provinces to uh, to promote public safety and, and not targeting law-abiding Canadians. And with regard to, to the, the confiscation or, or the buyback program, whatever that ends up looking like, there's there's a provision in this law then if, if a municipal police service, like if the Edmonton Police Service or the Calgary Police Service uh, wanted to enter into an agreement with the federal government. The feds say, we'll give you X number of dollars to administer the buyback program. This would give the Alberta government some say? 
It, it would. It would. Well, it would allow the provincial government to develop regulations to address that that situation, um, because as we've said from the beginning, when uh, the RCMP brought it to our attention and their concerns in, in being approached by the federal government, that the the idea of taking police resources off our streets and being distracted instead by a confiscation program actually decreases uh, safety in our community. So we we have. And continue to have uh, concerns with with that uh, proposal, um, as well as as municipalities um, wanting to or having conversations with the federal government and having municipal employees being involved in a seizure program. All right. So in the meantime, uh, this law has been tabled, but C twenty one is is still navigating uh, its its course in in Ottawa. So is this bill going to perhaps have to be amended depending on on what happens federally? No, because it is drafted in a way, um, this is what we learned from the Saskatchewan legislation, um, that they will have to, because it's all prescribed in the legislation. The approach we've taken here in the Alberta Firearms Act is to be more flexible, to be nimble, that when we see the details... Um, it's there are enabling clauses that allow the federal or the provincial government to develop regulations related to to that to addressing those issues. So th- this is has a focus on on the province being nimble. All right, we'll watch how this all plays out. Bill eight was uh, tabled yesterday. Tyler Shandro, appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Oh, thanks, Rob. Cheers. Uh, there you go. Alberta's Minister of Justice, Tyler Shandro, uh, tabled Bill eight in the Alberta Legislature yesterday. The Alberta Firearms Act. Uh, trying to find areas where maybe it can have an impact on the regulation of firearms. You know, provincial jurisdiction is somewhat limited here, you know, especially when it comes to stopping what the federal government intends to do, which is to take a certain number of firearms that are not prohibited and to make them prohibited. I mean, that is entirely and exclusively federal jurisdiction. Unless the courts have something to say about it, Ottawa can do that. It's bad policy. I think Alberta's right to oppose that. But I'm not sure that there's much Alberta can do on that front. Anyway, so Bill 8 is intended to, for example, to introduce the ability to make regulations that would allow for the licensing of seizure agents to develop a firearms compensation committee to set out Alberta's expectation about fair compensation and any buyback program. Also, the requirement that municipalities and municipal police service meet regulatory requirements before entering into any firearms-related funding agreements with the federal government. And by the way, coming up on the program tomorrow, we'll talk about the idea of Calgary and Edmonton jointly hosting the 2030 Commonwealth Games. There's a press conference happening, I, I think, as we speak, or might have just concluded, uh, there is a group that has come together. They are going to explore the idea. So they're going to prepare, I guess, an exploratory report. The exploration phase. The Alberta government is going to provide $2 million to this exploration phase. We'll hear from one of the folks involved in this coming up on the program tomorrow. What's involved in hosting the Commonwealth Games? Why should Albertans have some interest in this? Now, remember, Edmonton did... Way back in 1978, of course, the uh, Edmonton football team, now known as the Elks, plays in Commonwealth Stadium. So named because of that event, but the event doesn't get much attention. 
Certainly not on the scale of the Olympics, but maybe it's not as expensive as the Olympics. We'll find more about that on the program tomorrow. Uh, Still to come today, we'll talk more about the China election interference story. Uh, Although much to the chagrin of some, uh, like this listener who texts to say, it is bloody disgusting how the right wing, including you, are trying to blow this molehill into a mountain. Okay, well, interesting interpretation. Like I said, we'll talk more about it. A few other things we'll get to as well. I do want to get to this story because th- this is important, uh, especially for rural municipalities. The unpaid tax bill from oil and gas companies continues to grow. Now, why would that be happening at a time when the oil and gas industry is prospering? And that's what rural municipalities of Alberta uh, wants to call attention to. That this is hard to collect this money when times are rough. If it's hard to collect now when times are good, what does that portend for, you know, years ahead if things take another downturn? Basically, if you can't collect it in the bad times, you can't collect it in the good times, maybe you're just never going to collect it. But this is is revenue that rural municipalities rely heavily on. The amount now owed to towns and villages and rural municipalities uh, is now up to $268 million. So that's up from that's up 6% from last year. And get this, from 2018, that number has risen 261%. The rate of non-payment is increasing as well. So the status quo clearly isn't working. What needs to change? Why is this still a problem? What more can be done either by municipalities or perhaps by extension the provincial government uh, to ensure that this money is collected? I think this does relate at some level to the issue of well cleanup. We're talking about some of these same companies, I would imagine, uh, that uh, don't ha- just have a back tax bill, and they've got liabilities that they need to, to clean up as well. Joining us to talk more about this issue, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Paul McLaughlin, president of Rural Municipalities of Alberta. RMAlberta.com is their website. Paul, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Great. Thanks for having me today, Rob. Yeah, it's interesting because it might seem like a bit of a disconnect, or maybe people assume that, okay, things are going well in the oil patch. That must be uh, addressing this other issue that's been lingering, but that's not the case. So what's been going on here? You know, if I was a betting man, I, I, if you would have asked me in January how things would have been, and exactly, you've seen the highest commodity prices and free cash flow uh, pretty much in a generation. You could not get better. Uh, at the same time, we've seen a, uh, an increase. In unpaid taxes, quite shocking to our members. Uh, I presented it yesterday morning to them. We're really surprised by the increase. And uh, the truth is that there's a big loophole and, and someone's driving through the loophole. Well, let's talk a bit about that loophole then. What is it that's that's uh, allowing companies maybe to to kind of skirt this issue, avoid this issue, or, or not address these these liabilities? Well, regrettably, Rob, the, the, the fact is, is that normal property, uh, normal property, if you don't pay your taxes, we do have mechanisms. We have judicial sale. There's, there's pieces in place. Imagine oil and gas facilities are actually a surface lease on the land. And therefore, we can't use the normal tools available to us. For this is the third annual report. We've been spending three years literally telling the AAR that they need to use mechanisms within their regulatory system to ensure that taxes are paid. And at the same time, we're picking up the the gauntlet for surface leaks because those poor folks aren't being paid as well. Yeah, in fact, it appears as though that number is growing. The amount that's owed, the rate of non-payment is increasing. Now, total of $268 million. That's up from last year. It's up a lot since, you know, five years ago. So things are going in the wrong direction, aren't they? 
Yeah, and we're concerned. And, and you know, the, the problem we're having is is that we know who these companies are. Um, the fact is, is many of them are zombies. And when I use zombies, a word that's used in the industry, well, and we have Last of Us out here, so zombies right. probably an operative word to use right now. These are companies that actually their asset to liability ratio is below one. So therefore, their environmental liabilities are so high that that they're walking zombies. They're 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 having a tough time paying their bills. Well, what they're doing is using interest-free loans, that being surface lease payments and unpaid taxes, uh, to keep them afloat. And we're asking the government to to actually look at that in the formula on whether they should be solvent and how they should even operate. Well, what about the tools municipalities have at their disposal? Like, you know, for the, for example, the idea of, you know, attaching a lien to a property, uh, submitting these statements of concerns on applications for license transfers, these sorts of tools, are, are those really cutting it? Well, and definitely we have been using statements of concerns. The liens is a complex conversation. It definitely has some utility. But imagine uh, some of these properties are actually owned by numbered companies in the Cayman Islands. And I'm not joking. Like literally wow. some of these assets are owned by offshore companies. So imagine trying to exercise a lien owned by a company that's offshore. The, the legal complexities, it's very difficult to employ. Statements of concerns are very complex. And, and the reality is I just saw a company literally this week, one of my members had to put in a statement of concern for a company that owes one of my members a significant amount of money and has actually made an application to increase their oil field operations. Right. Um, just the gall of that, the fact that a company that has the gall that is they're not paying their municipal taxes and has the gall to apply for increasing their footprint, um, that's where we're having real issues and with the entire system as a whole. Yeah, no kidding. So what does this all mean then for municipalities? Because that's that's lost revenue. There's, there's costs involved here in, in trying to chase this down. But what's the impact this is having? Well, we're concerned. You know, $150 million has been written off. Theoretically, another $150 million is not recoverable. So $300 million is written off. That money comes from our reserves. It comes out of the, the, the assets that we have to use to replace our bridges and roads. It comes out of the pockets of every single Albertan. Uh, and, and what we're really worried about is there's another $140 million at risk. 40% of the companies are still operating. This money's still at risk because, as you know, gas prices go up. And they go down. And yeah. and we're worried this is a house of cards. So we're asking for some real courageous, bold enforcement by the AR to say, let's make this better. If there's any time to do it, it's now when things are at the peak. Because the worst thing is, is this is always discussed when things are at the lowest. All right. Well, let's talk about the role the province could play. Now, the Municipal Affairs Minister, Rebecca Schultz, did put out a statement late yesterday saying they're aware of these survey results. Their own numbers are saying basically the same thing, that the government is going to provide support as needed to municipalities. They say they could be in contact directly with some of these delinquent companies. What did you make of the minister's response? What, what are you hoping to see from the Alberta government here? Well, I, I appreciate it. And we've tried nudge, nudge, and we've tried to snuggle our way into payments. And I think that we need to bring, bring out the hammer. Um, I, I think that we've tried to use, uh, we've, we've worked with, with conversations with CAP and EPAC, the member communities. We need to really just make this regulatory. We need to use the stick and stop talking about the carrot. And we need to regulate the industry as a mature, proper industry. Listen, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in southern United States. And when I'm talking about the oil and gas industry, I am proud. Our, our, our profile is great. Our mm-hmm. ESG profile is great. We do have ethical oil. Um, this is a black eye in the industry. And this is really, we need to support the industry by correcting these holes in the system. And, and I think that we need to take this very seriously. Nudge, nudge, let's do this. Snuggle, snuggle. You know what? Bring out the hammer and let's fix this. So what does the hammer look like then? The hammer looks like that no, no company that has not paid their surface lease or their municipal taxes 
they can no longer operate an existing facility and not to allow the transfer of facilities from company A to B unless surface leases and taxes are paid by said company. Mm-hmm. And you know what's fascinating? Does that not sound like the simplest solution to a very simple problem? And the question I keep asking is, why is that not being solved? And I'm going to get a little political here, Rob. We should start asking rural MLAs because I know they're getting phone calls from surface rates folks, people yeah. that are that are getting not that having the first surface lease payments. Why is this government not making surface lease a priority as well? well? That's a good question. We'll see where it all goes from here. In the meantime, more at rmalberta.com, rural municipalities of Alberta. Paul, really appreciate your time here this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to me, Rob. Appreciate it. Well, there you go. All the best. Paul McLaughlin, president of rural municipalities of Alberta. So they want to see some action. And so laid out some steps maybe that could be taken here. Again, I mean, they're simply asking, you know, these companies to pay what they owe. Like, that's not an unreasonable request. Uh, So why isn't this happening? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.